0: You're listening to teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to MidtownColumbia.com. Welcome. I am Delisha Shingler. I'm one of the deacons here, if I have not had the pleasure of meeting you. Um, As you can tell, we are going to do things a little bit differently today. We have Tim here, who is about to go out to plant Citizens Church. Uh, So we are going to... Uh, engage in a question and answer session that we promised, remember, we had on the screens uh, throughout the series that you could send in your questions and that we would have some answers. And so we hope that Tim... He has come to we'll some definitely answers. try to
1: have answers. Okay, <laughs> okay, praise <laughs> the Lord.
0: So let's talk about why we're doing this Q&A before we actually get into the questions. So uh, so you may be sitting in the audience right now like, I didn't send a question in, I don't have no questions, I'm good. But remember the purpose of this, uh, as you can see, uh, this series was Why I Am a Christian. And so I want to point our eyes to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to go over it very quickly. But it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. So today, as we answer these questions, uh, have your, your ears alert to listen to how can you be walking alongside people in your community, your friends, your family who have questions about why you are a Christian? Why do you come here and gather here on Sundays? Why do you go to life groups on Tuesdays? Why do you act differently? Why do you talk differently? Why do you think differently? So that's what we are going to uh, prayerfully through the power of the Holy Spirit accomplish today so that we can continue to go out and live out the the good, the great commission that Jesus has given us. So without further ado, Tim, you have the floor. You want me to move on to our first question? Let's do it. All right. So our first question is, what is the right view of creation or evolution?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I uh, want to start with this. When we think about creation and evolution. Uh, This is an in-house debate, so if you are like, I'm exploring what it means to be a Christian, I'm exploring what it means to be a follower of Jesus, this is not where you should start. You should start with the person and work of Jesus. Do you believe that Jesus on the cross is for you and for your sin? Um, Much of the uncertainty around what we think about creation is because of two things. So the first, we talked about this actually two weeks ago when I was here talking about the Bible, is that we don't fully understand how to read Genesis 1. So the Bible, we talked about this two weeks ago, is not just a single Singular book. It's actually a library. It's a collection of numerous books with different genres. So there's narrative, there's historical accounts, there's poetry. And so Genesis 1 uh, reads much more like a poem than a narrative historical account. So let me just show you an example of this. It'll be on the screen, Genesis 1, 3 through 8. So this is just two of the days where God is creating in Genesis 1. So it says this, it says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And then you're going to see this exact same pattern in verses 6 through 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. So there's a rhythm and pattern if you read Genesis 1. And why that is, is because it's actually an ancient Mesopotamian poem. So because it's the genre of poetry, there's some debate between biblical scholars whether we should read it uh, as literally what God did or as more metaphorical, more uh, figurative language. So that's the first reason why we have some uncertainty and some debate. The second reason is trying to reconcile science and God, right? So there's a false view out there that God and the Bible is anti-science, And I would actually say that's strongly wrong, right? You can't pit God and science against each other. So what happens is we think, okay, well, science has all these things, and and God says all these things, and I can't try to reconcile them. So how do I hold those two in tension? Uh, A good friend of mine said the other day he was sitting in the living room with his wife and his son, and his son asked him this question. He said, where does the wind come from? And his wife responded, Well, the wind comes from God. God creates the wind. And my friend in his mind was thinking the whole time, Well, actually, wind comes when two atmospheric pressures that are different hit each other, and that's where the wind comes from. Which says a lot about my friend. It says everything you need to know about my friend. Here's a question for you who's right? Both, Both, right? Both are right. Right, God sends the wind, and the wind is a result of atmospheric pressures. And so that's just a, a really easy, tangible example that shows that God and science don't have to be pitted against each other. Uh, a 17th century philosopher uh, and astrologer who actually discovered the way that planets rotate around the sun, his name was Johannes Kepler, he said this really beautifully. He said, science is thinking God's thoughts after him. Science is discovering more and more of God's universe. Science is discovering more and more of God's world. And so that's what we do when we approach the doctrine of creation. So with that, let me give you a few, op- a few uh, theories. A few theories that people believe, Christian and not, about where we came from, how we got the universe, all of that. I'll try to hit them real quickly. Number one is naturalistic evolution. Naturalistic evolution. This is evolution without God. Evolution as explanation for everything. Uh, most commonly, this looks like the Big Bang Theory. Not the TV show, but the actual scientific theory. Uh, that's what, mostly what you're taught in public schools, those kind of things where there was, there was this small atom, and it all has kind of expanded quickly and then throughout time. That's the first theory, the first option, naturalistic evolution. The second is evolutionary creation, which also uh, is commonly called theistic evolution which means God guided the process of evolution. So a a big verse that uh, theologians point to that hold this view is Psalm 139, 13, where the psalmist says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. So what he's not saying is God just placed him there, right? There's biological means and processes that we can talk about later that get the child there in the womb. But what he is saying is that God had a hand in it. And so what uh, evolutionary creation, theistic evolution says is that God guided the process of evolution. That's option number two. Number three, old earth creationism. Old earth creationism. So God created the world as spelled out in a literal account of Genesis 1 and 2. And the earth is currently four and a half or so billion years old, whatever the the current uh, scientific dating is on it. And there's kind of two leading theories in there. So there's the gap theory, which basically means that Genesis 1-1 happened, and then there was a lot of time, and then Genesis 1-2. So it was kind of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Pause. Now Genesis 1-2. So that's the kind of gap theory. The second one is the day age theory which basically says when you read those accounts of the days in Genesis 1, that those days are more like ages, more like long periods of time. And so that's why the earth is as old as it is. That's option number three. Option number four, young earth creationism. Young earth creationism takes Genesis 1 as being literal seven-day creation period what they argue is that earth is only uh, thousands of years old, but it may have the appearance of age, either because God created it with the appearance of age or because of the flood in Genesis 7 actually gives it an appearance of age. Fun fact, uh, in the young earth creationism view, people existed at the same time as dinosaurs, which sounds very fun. So if you want to believe that, that sounds great. Uh, This is a fun fact. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about. I just thought it was fun that... Humans and dinosaurs existed on the Earth at the same time, according to that view, which sounds very scary as well. Uh, real quick, here's what you must believe. So those are the kind of the options. Those what you those are the kind of the options you have before you. Let's talk about three things biblically as Christians. You have to believe that help you parse through these options and these theories. The first is that God is the main agent in creation. So you have to believe as a Christian that God is the main agent in creation. Your theology and doctrine about everything else as a Christian will break down if you do not believe that God is the driving force behind all of it. He is the one who created the world. He is the one that gave it purpose. He is the one that designed it. Whatever means you land on that he used, he has to be the main driving force in the creating act. Secondly, people are God's special creation. There is something unique about being made as a human, that you and you alone as a human are made in the image of God, right? Dogs are great. Cats are great. They do not bear the image of God like men and women bear the image of God. And so that's what you have to believe, have to believe that people are God's special creation. Number three, you have to believe that God made it all good and sin is our problem. God made it good, and sin is the problem. Sin is the cause of all of our brokenness, relationally, physically, spiritually. All of our brokenness is caused by sin. Small scale, medium scale, large scale, all of, all of that. So based on those three things, God is the main agent. People are God's special creation. God made it all good, and sin is our problem. Uh, we believe that it... it cancels out uh, out of all four of those options, the first option, because the first option is the one that doesn't have those things. So naturalistic evolution doesn't account for God as the driving force, doesn't account for a unique creation in man and woman bearing the image of God, it doesn't account for the reality of sin in our lives. And so uh, the bottom three, there's, there's liberty, there's freedom as a Christian to believe one of those three, but we would say you have to reject naturalistic evolution because it doesn't affirm those key things the Bible affirms. Uh, That was a really quick version of that uh, answer. If you want to deep dive into this, a book I would recommend is called Four Views on Creation, Evolution, and Intelligent Design. Uh, This Four Views is actually a series that uh, the book publisher Zondervan does, and they have four views books on lots of different topics, but this is a really good one I would recommend. That's question one, and we got four, so buckle up.
0: Nice. Thank you, Tim. So it seems like with that question, what's at stake is God's sovereignty, right? Oh, 100%. Acknowledging his sovereignty in all things. So question two. Yeah. What happens to people who never hear the gospel?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Speaking of God's sovereignty, right, we'll just keep tracking along those lines. So usually this question sounds something like, Hey, there's a, a villager in some part of Africa or Asia who never gets exposed to the gospel in their life, right? They're, they're living the best life they can. They, they seem to be sincere in whatever they believe. They never get a chance to hear about Jesus. What happens to them? What's their ultimate fate? Do they go to heaven? Do they go to hell? And that's actually a really good question. I hope you're asking that question because what that question shows is that you care about the souls of people right? That you believe in the good news of Jesus and you want people to know the good news of Jesus. So if you're asking that question, that means that you care and that you care about the gospel, you care about the good news spreading. Uh, a couple of things I want to do is I just want to address a couple different questions behind that question and hopefully lay a groundwork to show you uh, where we're coming from when we answer this. So the first question I want to ask is why do people go to hell or why do people receive God's judgment in the first place? That's the first question you have to ask yourself. Why, in the first place, do people receive God's judgment? If you have a a Bible, go to Romans 1 real quick. Romans 1, 18 through 23. It won't be on the screen, so if you need a Bible, there should be some on the the backs of the seats, I think. Uh, Romans 1, 18 through 23. So we're asking the question, why do people go to hell, or why do people receive God's judgment in the first place? Romans 1, 18 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Romans 1 tells us, I want to make sure I say this clearly, is that no one receives God's judgment because they haven't had the chance to hear about Jesus. No one receives God's judgment because of lack of information. Humans receive God's judgment because they've rejected God. I want to make sure you hear that distinction, right? So humans, what's often underlying this whole idea, the assumption that comes with this question is, well, what about that person who's innocent in the village somewhere? And the answer that the Bible gives to that is no one is innocent before God. Right, the, the answer the Bible gives is, hey, actually all of us have sinned before the Lord. There's not a neutral or good person somewhere who hasn't heard the gospel. Actually, all of us have rejected God. This is what the Bible says several times. Romans 3:23 It says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3:10 and 11. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. This is why Jesus says in, in John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So man is not morally neutral or good, innocent and without fault. All of us are in sin and in rebellion against a holy God. There's another question that's underneath all this, and that's this question. It's, is God just? Can I trust him and will I let him be God. So the Bible says that all of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that he sets the standard. It's his world. He's the king. And the only person that can give right judgment for sin is the one who is both the author of all things, the creator of the world, and the one who has never sinned himself, right? So if you want to know what the right punishment for murder is, you would not go ask a bunch of murderers, right? If you want to know, hey, what's the just punishment for this, you would go to the one who is innocent of all sin, You would go to the creator of the world. This is the beautiful tension of our God, that he is both perfectly loving and perfectly just. And the reality is it doesn't look like we want it to, right? So God is perfectly just. He can't dwell with sin and sinners. God is so holy and so righteous and so other that he can't dwell in the midst of sinful people, which the Bible says that all of us are. But he is also loving. And so he has made a way for us to be made right, to be washed clean, to be made new, to be forgiven of our sins through the person and work of Jesus and through faith in him. And so what happens is because God is both perfectly loving and perfectly just, and we are, all of us, dead in our sins, the question becomes not what happens to those people, but how could God be so gracious that he would actually save any of us? Right? How could he be so wonderful that, that all of us who deserve his wrath, all of us des- that deserve his punishment would actually be saved and washed clean and have the chance to know and walk with Jesus? And so what happens then, hopefully, uh, as, as non-Christians, there's gratitude that you're in this room right now hearing the gospel. That's God's favor in your life. And as Christians, hopefully this sparks within you a deep desire of gratitude for what Christ has done for you. And this innate sense of, I got to go tell other people about the good news of Jesus that I've experienced. Anything you would you would add to that?
0: Yeah. So I I think what you uncovered and we started with this question of what happens to people who never hear the gospel. But you uncovered that one of the questions that people in our in our lives often have is this innate question of good versus evil. And like, who are we as people? So that's one thing that we have to wrestle with. What do we believe that the uh, uh, about people being born? Like we often believe that people are born innocent. But we have to challenge what we believe with what God has said about people. Um, And so that's one of the major things that we unearth through that question is that we have these beliefs that we ourselves have to wrestle with, that our culture has told us is true about people, and that when they're little, they're great, they're innocent. But the Bible would tell us something differently.
1: So. My, uh, my wife's about to have our first kid here in a few weeks, and a buddy of mine said, Tim, no one who's had a two-year-old rejects the idea that men are born as sinners, <laughs> right? Because you look at a two-year-old, and like, they don't learn, how did you learn how to, like, you didn't have to learn how to lie, you just lie. Like, it's just a part of you that you just do, you just disobey uh, my, my niece is one and a half. And it's like, you are already rebellious. Like, anytime her mom says anything to her, she's like, oh. she just rejects it automatically. And it's like, what? Uh, yeah, that's really good. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right, so we are moving on to our third question. Uh, Tim, are you ready for this question? Um, let's hope. Oh, okay. oh, they got it on the screen. Gosh, does God condone slavery?
1: Yeah, it's a, a really good good question. Um, yeah, let me start with, with the answer, and then I'll, I'll kind of break it down. So the big fat answer is no, right? God does not condone. He does not approve of. He does not give a thumbs up to slavery. So let's make sure we start there. Slavery is not good and not okay in God's book Uh, But a few kind of thoughts, as as Aunt and I were even talking about this question, getting ready for for today, uh, that really stuck with me. So a couple of thoughts I want to give you around this idea. So the first thought is this. Number one, uh, the Bible over and over and over and over again condemns oppression. It's a fact of the Bible over and over and over again. Uh, and you can actually ask him for it. He would love to share it with you. has a document. I've seen it. It's pages and pages. I think there's 60-some passages of Scripture that just talk about God's heart for the oppressed and how much he hates oppression, how much he hates those in power, taking advantage of those not in power. I'll give you three of them, three of uh, my favorites. Exodus 22, 21 through 24. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So much God cares about the oppressed. I'll give you a couple more. Deuteronomy twenty four fourteen. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who is in your land within your towns. Proverbs 14, 31, this one's huge. Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. God says, I so identify with the oppressed that if you uh, go against them, if you do wrong to them, it's like you are doing it to me as their maker, as their designer, as their author. So that's the first thing we gotta get out of the way. God hates oppression. He hates those in power taking advantage of those not in power. This is my thought number two. Uh, slavery in the modern world is very different from slavery in the time of the Bible. So let's, let's kind of break that down. So slavery in the Greco-Roman ancient world is very different than slavery of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries that we often think about when we think about slavery and slavery today. So here's a couple ways it was different. The first is that it was different in the terms. The terms of slavery. So in the ancient world, slavery was often an economic agreement. So someone would often willingly enter into uh, an agreement of uh, servitude, of indentured servitude, of slavery to pay back a debt that they owed. So what would happen is there would be terms of when it would end. So either whenever you finished paying off that debt or whenever you passed away, that slavery wouldn't go down to your children. It was a set agreement that that happened. It wasn't perpetual. It didn't keep going through generations. In the modern world, slaves were forced into captivity, right? They were often stolen from their people. They were forced into slavery. The, The whole industry of the West African slave trade was based on taking people from their homes and selling them against their will, right? So even just in terms of the terms and how it was set up, it was completely different. And God God hates that. So I'll give you another verse. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. So there's God's heart again, right? You don't do this. This is not okay. You don't treat people like this. That's the first one, the terms of slavery. Second, the treatment of slaves. So in the ancient Greco-Roman world, there was a whole system of laws that were set up to protect the slaves from mistreatment. And so there was a whole system of laws that protected them as individuals in that society. Slaves were often given an education. They were often taught. They were often uh, equipped so that when they paid back their debt and were released back to, to be free again, they could function and flourish in society. And you contrast that with how slaves in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries were treated. They were often denied education for the purpose of keeping them down, right? That was one of the biggest things is they would say, hey, you can't teach them how to read because if you teach your slaves how to read, they'll read the Bible, and they'll see that they're actually supposed to be set free and that liberty is God's heart. And so even in how they were treated, that was a, a big a big difference. And then the third one, and this one is, is really crucial to understand, is the racial and ethnic component. Right, so in Greco-Roman world, in the ancient world, slavery was almost never racialized. So it was never about, hey, you look different than me, or you're from a different place than me, or whatever. That was not what it was about. Oftentimes, people would enslave people that were part of their own uh, culture, part of their own heritage, part of their own ethnicity and race. Um should I hit all that? Yeah. In the modern world, uh, it was a whole system built off of racial differences and prejudice, right? So it was a whole system based off, based off of, hey, you look different than me, and you're from a different place than me, and so you must be lesser than. You must be different. And that's just totally different. And why, why this is important is we actually have a clear example in Scripture that looks much more like modern-day slavery than ancient Roman slavery, and that's the example of the Israelites. So in Egypt, the Israelites are kept in slavery past generations, There was no end date set up for it. They were enslaved to the Egyptians in Exodus for almost 400 years. They were oppressed. They were treated harshly. They didn't have uh, help. Pharaoh kept putting more and more burden on them. And so what God does is he sees that and he says, hey, that's off. I'm gonna step in and I'm gonna free these people from their captivity. That's the second thought. Let me give you uh, one more thought. Thought number three, be careful with what you say God condones because of narrative accounts be careful with what you say God condones because of narrative accounts this is back to the idea of genre Right? You can't read the narratives in Scripture, the stories in Scripture, like their epistles from Paul or from Peter or from James. Right? So what happens is we read uh, the book of Romans, and we see Paul say, do this, don't do this, do this, and we take it and we're like, all right, that sounds good. We can't then go to the narratives like Genesis and Exodus and read it and go, okay, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, because they're different. They're different genres, and so we read them differently. But what happens is we often approach the narrative accounts like do's and don'ts. Right? And so we see people living a certain way, and we don't see God stepping in going, hey, this is off, you shouldn't do it. And so we just think God condones it without taking the whole of the scriptures and seeing time and time again where God says, hey, do this, don't do this, in relation to that thing because we just read the one narrative account. And so we think, okay, God's silent about this in this specific area, this specific passage, so surely he must say it's Okay. That's actually really bad hermeneutics. That's really bad Bible theology to make arguments out of silence. But actually uh, an agreed-upon thing among biblical scholars to not say, hey, just because it's not there doesn't mean you can't build a whole biblical theology off of that. But we can see throughout Scripture what God does say, right? So we might read the narrative accounts and say, okay, well, God doesn't explicitly say, like, this is wrong, this is bad, but we do see what he does in Scripture, right? Over 60 times he condemns oppression. So his oppression is not okay. Second, throughout Scripture, you see that God's heart is that men would be free. Mm. God's heart is for freedom. It's for liberty. A few examples of this is the book of Philemon in the New Testament. Mm. Right, so Paul tells Philemon, his, his slave Onesimus has run away, and Paul's response is, hey, when he comes back, I really strongly encourage you to set him free. Mm. So He says to welcome him back, not as a slave, but as a brother in Christ because he's free now in the gospel. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God establishes a whole system of laws called the the Jubilee system. And it's a set up time where once every seven years, slaves would be set free and their debts would be canceled. He sets up a whole system to go, this is so not okay. I want my people to be free so badly that I'm going to set up a system where their debts are canceled every so often just to make sure, hey, people should be free. It should be full of liberty. Galatians, uh, the entire book of Galatians is about freedom. Galatians 3 in particular reminds us that in Christ there is neither slave nor free. All are set free in Christ. Galatians 5, 1 says it is for freedom that Christ has set you free. God's heart throughout Scripture is liberty. And so you can't reject all of that and just go, well, in Genesis, whatever. It seems like he he doesn't say right in that passage that it's not okay. So it must be okay. You have to read the whole of Scripture and gain a biblical theology about all of it see what he says about about all of it. Anything you'd, you'd add to that?
0: Yeah, I think another part of this is that when we are approaching scripture, we must remember that we are not to look at the people in the Bible to tell us what God is like. We are to look at what God reveals of himself. And so when we look at people enslaving people in the Bible, it's not God. And so to say God condones slavery is a really far shot because God is not the one enslaving people. God even talks about with our sin, our sin enslaves us and he comes to set the captives free. And so we can't, and, and it's the same thing in our lives. We look at uh, different things for people maybe and and we say, well, maybe this is okay, but we can't let people be our standard. We must let Christ be our standard as those of us who say we're
1: Christians. And oftentimes in the narratives, they're in there because it goes bad, right? So they're like, "Hey, let me show you how this totally goes poorly." And then we read it, and we're like, "Maybe we should do that too." And instead of totally missing uh, the the reality of God's going, no, oh, hey, this is this is how this goes off. Don't do this because this is this is bad, bad news. It's good.
0: Um, and so we're gonna tie this up together with what are good ways to start uh, the dialogue about these issues with our friends.
1: Yeah, that's really good. So, uh, yeah, I love what you said at the very beginning, right? The whole point of this series is that we would be able to give in a reason for the hope that we have, right? That First Peter, such a beautiful verse where it says, hey, I want you to be assured of this, and I want you to stand firm in this. Uh, and so a couple of thoughts, uh, a couple of verses and thoughts come to mind. The verse is John 6, 44. That's where Jesus says this. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. So there's a the reality, as you think about living on mission, as you think about, hey, I know this Jesus, I, I know this gospel, and I want other people to know it too, the reality is over and over and over again in the gospels, and here in John 6:44, Jesus says, I and my Father are the ones who draws to me. I draw them to myself. You don't do it. Your, your goal is to, to put Jesus in front of them, say, hey, this is what I've experienced, this is what my life has been like, this is how God has changed me and washed me clean and made me new, and then it's God the Father who draws them to himself, Right? And so just, just know that the pressure is off in all of this. Right? If you get ask these questions, if they're like, hey, I'm really thinking about this Jesus, but tell me about creation versus evolution. That's the, there's so much pressure on us right, to go, okay, i got to answer this perfectly because if I say the right things about creation and evolution and all this stuff, then boom, they're going to become a Christian. And God, and God says, no, no, the pressure is off. I'm the one who brings people to myself. I'm the one who ransoms and redeems and sets free. That's the, the first thing. The second, uh, and we talked about this from the First Peter 3 passage, but a big reason why we wanted to do this series is to say, hey, as Christians, you do not have to concede the theological or philosophical or intellectual high ground, yeah. right? Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you have to check your brain at the door. It doesn't mean suddenly you got to do away with reason and it's all just blind faith and we're just the crazy ones walking around. They're those those, you know antiquated Bible believers. They don't know anything. They're not thinking about science. They're not thinking about reason. And what we wanted to show you is, hey, we actually have grounding to stand on. Mm -hmm. We actually can look at the world around us. We can look at the biblical truths. We can look at science and say, hey, actually as Christians, this is a really valid thing to believe and to love and to trust. Mm -hmm. So that's the second thing I would say. And then uh, a couple of things before before we pray and close. Uh, number one, if you're still wrestling with all this stuff, so if you're like, hey, this is my first time in church, what are we doing? <laughs> uh, I just want to say this to you. I want you to hear this, and Ant would want you to hear this if he were here too. You're welcome here. If you're still wrestling with what does it mean to be a Christian, what does it mean to follow Jesus, what are all these, these things about, you are welcome here. We want this to be a safe place for you to get to ask questions and wrestle, to, to get into a life group and have people around you that love you and care about you and want to answer your questions and want to just sit with you as you are thinking about your questions and wrestling through all of this stuff. And then secondly, uh, for Christians in the room, I just want to remind you, all of this is good. Right? We need to think deeply about the things of God. We need to think deeply about why does God exist. We need to think about uh, what is the Bible. We need to think about all of these things. And I want to remind us that first and foremost, as Midtown's vision statement says, we are Jesus-centered. Yeah. Right? We are about Jesus. And So this different positions on creation and evolution are good. And, and thinking about this stuff with slavery is so good. And thinking about all of this stuff is so good. And at the end of the day, we are a people about Jesus. We want to lift him up. We want to celebrate him. We want to raise him high. We want to revolve our lives around him. That's what we're going for. And so we can answer these questions and wrestle and all of that. But at the end of the day, it comes back to, are we willing in the midst of our questions to put him on the throne and worship him as he truly is, which is Lord and King and Savior? Anything else?
0: Yeah. first of all, thank you, Tim.
1: Yeah, That was uh,
0: wonderful. But I also wanted to say to the believers in the room, um, be brave in that we have Acts 17, right? I think it's 17 and 26 that tells us that God has placed us where we are with whom we are with to share his gospel so that people may feel their way to him. So when we ask the question, like, where do I start? I start by being where God has placed me and, and looking and having eyes of wonder and remembering how in, in your life that God brought you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And being excited to share that, remembering the good news that was first brought unto you. And then you go and you tell the people around you with whom God has placed you. Um, and so just remembering that. And then to Tim's second point, um, in that scripture in First uh, Peter... It says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord. And so Tim's second point is it is all about Jesus. So it's not about arguments. Like uh, I think Ant has said this from the stage throughout this series. Like no one ever comes to Christ. None of us probably in this room who have come to Christ, come to Christ because we've had some great argument with somebody and they just won us over with their cunning uh, skills. No, it's because we were broken. We still are and we needed his salvation. And somebody was probably the hands and feet of Jesus. They were probably imaging him and came alongside of us. So again, just be brave. Be brave in what you have. Be brave in the Holy Spirit, knowing that he will empower you to say the right thing at the right time. So